It's midnight. I'm alone in southern Thailand, floating on my back in the calm ocean water. The brushstroke of glimmering white light that cuts through the heavens is breathtaking. Reverence and wonder push outward on my being as I float amongst the stars. I feel some thoughts burgeoning. The wonder entices them to run freely. Not yet, I think to myself. Right now, just bathe here in the fullness of existence. Fill yourself without shapes or borders, without words or concepts. Let go entirely and just be. Soak in the simple and unanswerable marvel of being. After 15 minutes or so of total surrender, of non-doing, I work my way back to the shore. Yum, I think to myself. How healing. I sit down on my towel and acknowledge the little blooms, the thoughts that eagerly awaited my attention. I feel a sense of communion as I imagine the first kid to look up at the stars and wonder. What a sacred moment that must have been. Wonder is the beginning. It's the space from which all things unfold. It gives birth to questions. It's the womb of understanding. It molds from the empty, formless space of awareness all that can be known. Our relationship with the stars, the awe and reverence we hold for them, is not only a great starting point for the history of thought, it's largely what it means to be human. Children across space and time have looked up to the heavens and been swept away by its beauty and deep mystery. And some of these brave little cosmologists, desperate to know more about their home, the cosmos, eventually began to speculate answers. In Thailand, there's an ancient story about how a particular star cluster known today in the West by its Greek name, the Pleiades, came to occupy the night sky. As the story goes, a monk made camp one night near a poor couple's little hut, and the couple was worried because it was their culture's tradition to feed monks who often swore off all possession. And the couple had only some brown rice, a hen, and seven chicks. It was also a common belief that such an act of generosity, especially to a monk, would lead to rewards in a future life. So, despite their worry, the poor couple decided to give the monk the best food they had, their hen. The hen overheard this, so she took her chicks aside and said, I love you, but I must go now. It's time for you all to take care of yourselves. Early the next morning, the couple killed the hen and began to roast her. The chicks were so overcome by grief that they ran and jumped into the fire, hoping to remain with their mother. And as legend has it, the seven chicks were then reborn as stars in the sky now called Dao Lukai. The Kiowa tribe, an indigenous people of the Great Plains of the United States, tell a different story about this same constellation 
It goes something like this. A group of seven women snuck away one night to dance under the stars. But suddenly, the bear people showed up and started to chase the women. So the woman ran and climbed onto a large rock for safety. But the bear people too started to climb. Panicked, the woman asked the rock for protection. And because no one had honored it before, the rock agreed to help. So it shot out of the dirt and knocked the bear people to the ground. The women were safe for now, but they quickly realized that they were now stranded on the rock. What are we going to do now? They said with worry on their faces. Desperate, they sang prayers to the stars for help. Happy to hear their praise, the stars took the seven women into the night sky. In midwinter, you can still see them sitting above the Devil's Tower in Wyoming, smiling down on the rock spirit with gratitude. What wonderful stories, attempts at explaining the world. Just imagine, faced with their ignorance, hearts eager and full of wonder, they had to start somewhere. What can you do but throw some color onto the canvas and go from there? We simply don't know what we don't know. We can only guess. To really fill into this problem situation of understanding, let's step into a thought experiment. Go ahead and rewind the tape of your life until you first came out of the womb. What did you know at this point? Did you know who you were? Did you know yourself? Probably not. In fact, you probably didn't have any concepts. Sure, natural selection armed your body with innate impulses, genetic algorithms, say, to cry and breastfeed, but it seems unlikely you experienced yourself as separate from the world. Your experience would have been full, seamless, without division. So, how did you come to hold concepts, including the concept of yourself? Well, only with time and experience, as the environment got in the way of your innate impulses, like hunger, I think could you start to tease the world apart from you. Only then, it seems, could you learn that there are things out in the world for you to manipulate, navigate, avoid, use, dissuade, or persuade in order to act out your innate impulses. To better understand what I mean, consider handing a chimp a treat. The chimp will grab the treat without thinking about it. There's no need for a reflection. But if you block the treat with obstacles, the chimp has to be creative. It has to use imagination to satisfy its desire or innate impulse. Hmm, here are some boxes. Maybe I can stack them up and climb on them to get the treat. So the chimp in solving its problem paints concepts or imagery around those parts of the world that stand in relation to its impulses. We learn about ourselves, then, through this conditioning. As our innate impulses drive us, we get feedback from the environment about where our edges are. Okay, now consider our chimp again who's forced to pause and reflect. While the chimp's action is suspended, what do you think it feels? 
what does it experience during that pause? Frustration? Resistance? Now, where does the chimp believe this resistance exists? Is it in the object? Or does the chimp think it comes from within? That it's a psychological phenomenon? What is this invisible power the chimp needs to overcome? What is this resistance? Now consider how the chimp might feel about the boxes when it realizes the boxes will help it get the treat. Does the chimp believe the boxes are on its side, like many of our ancestors who tried to make the rain or sun gods happy so they too would be on their side? Or again, does the chimp think this is an inner state, an inner feeling that is not apart from the chimp? These invisible forces are, of course, fragmentary elements of the chimp's inner being, but I doubt the chimp understands this. Rather, it's likely that these feelings are naively projected onto the outer world, like a kid who kicks his toy because it pinched his finger. A survey of the world's ancient religions seems to support this view, that these invisible forces, or Newman, were believed to be a part from who or what we are. In ancient Rome, for example, Janus is not a fully personified god who presides over doorways and gates, but is simply the spirit of doorness, a spiritual power present in all doors that can help or harm one who passes through them. Magic, mythology, and religion, it seems, find their roots here. As these Newman accumulated, we would have needed a better way to navigate, organize, and make sense of them. We would have needed a system or framework to help us better understand these magical forces. So, mythology and religion became the vessels for magic and the supernatural, which allowed us to paint these unseen powers with more definite shapes and qualities, giving them an increasingly concrete form. In time, these supernatural entities eventually detached entirely from their objects and became beings of their own. Our collection of noumena slowly transformed into complete anthropomorphic gods, like the gods of Egypt, India, Greece, and all the rest. Supernatural knowledge became knowledge of a higher order, knowledge of the gods revealed only to the inspired, or as the Greeks said, to the divine man, the prophet, poet, and priest. It's here then, around the time of the agricultural revolution, that our ancestors' beliefs shifted from animism to polytheism. As agriculture developed and cities expanded, our ancestors developed entire pantheons of gods to explain all kinds of phenomenon. Gods of war, water, fertility, wisdom, music, death, love, and so on. Before long, there was a god or goddess for everything. Our polytheist ancestors began to see the world as their own, as something given to them by the gods. And if they made the gods happy, the gods would reward them with plenty of food, water, and good fortune. But if they upset the gods, well, then the capricious gods would punish them with droughts, earthquakes, plagues, and other catastrophes. Over time, though, as more kingdoms arose, each with its own pantheon of gods, 
the arena started to get overcrowded. And when you have so many gods in charge of so many things, odds are you're going to piss off at least some of them. People therefore started to pick favorites, worshipping only one god, even though they believed other gods exist. This is a form of worship known as henotheism, which seems to have first appeared in India during the Vedic period. You can also see traces of henotheism in the Bible. In the book of Jeremiah, for example, Yahweh gets upset at his people for worshipping Ishtar. Don't you see what they're doing in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather sticks, the fathers build the fire, and the mothers knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven, Ishtar. And they pour libations to other gods to vex me? Jeremiah and Ezekiel, two prophets from the Abrahamic religions, were early missionaries of the idea that all gods except one are false. They even went so far as to argue that the one true God punishes idolatry. But anyway, like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, many polytheists became so fond of their patron God that over the generations, people began to believe that the God of their ancestors was the only true God. Thus, the seeds of monotheism were sown. Okay, so our early ancestors' speculations of the world were, well, naive and childlike. But what do you expect? We had to start somewhere. We owe all our knowledge to these brave little cosmologists. It's their wonderfully imaginative stories that mark our first brave steps into the darkness of our ignorance. But imagination alone, of course, won't get us any nearer to truth. We also need a way to rein in our poetic imaginations. In the next episode, then, we'll explore how a small group of Greeks in the Ionian colonies finally figured out how to get a purchase on our wonderfully creative stories. Anyway, to finish today, I thought I'd just propose some questions to you to sit with. Where does wonder, reverence, and awe show up in your life? What opens your eyes wide and makes you feel vast? What brings vitality to your being? What motivates you to learn and understand and grow? What demands a story? What demands understanding? How does art, poetry, or storytelling personally help you to understand the world? What myths or archetypes help you make sense of life? Do you have any stories that shed light on your own internal world of thought, feeling, and emotion? Anyway, you truly are an awe-inspiring creature. Until next time.